Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. We turn the remainder of our Bible Instruction Time over now to our, dear, our brother, Gary McBride. Well, great to be with you. I was thinking this morning, it's wonderful to see the progress that Buck has made over this, this month. Uh, walking with a cane, so he'll be without a cane because he's able. <laughs> I think Buck brought the cane this morning just for that. <laughs> so we're in Second uh, Timothy chapter 4. You know, as Bill was reading to us uh, the first verse there, King James says uh, he will come to judge the quick and the dead. I remember many years ago that a conference on the west side of Toronto, and the man that preached had come from the east side and from a city on the east side of Toronto, and he was preaching on this passage. And he made comment about the quick and the dead. He said, I understand what that means now. He said, I came through Toronto, and either you're quick or you're dead. And, uh, <laughs> driving in Florida here, some intersections, I understand again. You're either uh, going to be quick or you're going to be something else, for sure. Uh, it's interesting, in Florida, uh, I always want to look in my rear mirror as I come to a, a yellow light. Uh, it's not the fact that it's yellow, it's what is the fellow behind me going to do? And so... Uh, you have to be quick or you would be something else. Uh, so as we uh, look at this passage, uh, thinking of uh, Paul's words, and especially in verse 6 to verse 8, of his readiness to depart and his summation uh, of life. And uh, we might call it his valedictory address, his, his victory address, his finishing address as he assesses uh, his his life, and you know the Christian life is really a marathon, isn't it? It's not a it's not a hundred yard dash where you just boom and you're you're done. Uh, it could be compared to a relay race, of course. You're running and passing the baton on, but in other ways, it's a marathon. You know, Hebrews chapter thirteen reminds us that uh, looking off unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, let us run. With patience, the race that was beset before us, laying aside every weight and sin which does so easily uh, beset us. Uh, the idea of putting it off, running, but looking off is looking away from, but looking at him and running to finish well. And it's difficult, uh, as we, we know from experience. Not many people, in terms of the, the whole of Christianity, go on to finish well. So many fail. Uh, somewhere along uh, the course, uh, course of life. And uh, it's so important to finish well. Uh, I think back in my life and experience with the youth group I was in, the youth groups I've been involved in, camp work, how many started well but haven't uh, finished well, either caught up in the uh, materialism of the world, the job, and just focused on that and, and moved away, I know lots of, of men, especially, that, that used to preach and preach well and just got caught up in the things of the world, the materialism, the advancement, the jobs, the career, and just wandered in that direction. And then, of course, morally, so many have failed as well. And so it's so important to, to finish well. I remember reading of uh, Chuck Swindoll. Uh, he had a list. He said he hated to open his drawer and see it, but of people he knew that he'd been in seminary with, been in ministry with, and at that time there was 42 names on that list of men that had disappeared from the ministry for various uh, reasons. In 
On August 7th of 1954, there was a race in Vancouver, or Victoria, British Columbia. It was, uh, it was called the Commonwealth Games. So you have the Olympic Games, but the years in between the Commonwealth countries will, will have a competition. And at that race, uh, John Landry and Roger Bannister were going to face off each other. Both had run a sub-four-minute mile. Now, that seems like nothing these days. People run, I think, in about 350 or, or less. But back then, both had just one time broken the four-minute barrier. It almost was presented as an impossible uh, feat. And so they were going to face off against uh, each other. And so it was a much-anticipated uh, race. And uh, Landry uh, won, the, won the race, but Bannister was leading at one point. And just as they neared the finish line, Bannister looked over his shoulder to see where Landry was. But he looked over the wrong shoulder, and Landry passed on the other side. And so, uh, you know, he's running the race, looking, but then he turned around and lost it. And a, a bronze statue was made of that, that scene. And here's what he said. He said, well, Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt for looking back. I'm probably the only one ever turned into a bronze statue for looking back. So uh, he had the race won, but took his eyes off the prize and didn't finish uh, the race. So here in, in verse 1, I want to think of verse 1 for a few minutes before we look at verses 6 to 8. In verse 1, uh, you have the, the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come to judge the living and the dead. And there is going to be a judgment, an assessment one day. Now, of course, we know at the end of time, there will be what's called the great white throne judgment, where all of humanity will stand there. Those not, whose names are not found in the Lamb's Book of Life will be cast into a lost eternity, separated forever uh, from the presence of God. But for those of us who are believers we will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, that's a different matter than the great white throne judgment. There, it's, we might say, retribution and punishment for Christ rejectors. But the judgment seat of Christ is where we as believers will have our lives, lives assessed, where he will look at what our life has been for him and for his glory. Uh, Perhaps an analogy would be if you uh, made something for a country fair, for instance. Uh, I don't know, you made apple pie or something, and you're presenting it to, to be judged, to be assessed. And, uh, I mean, Lanny's probably going to be able to do something like this after his time in the kitchen. <laughs> but uh, you present something, and uh, your, your sense of anticipation, the judges are come along, they're going to taste what you've, you've made, they're going to look at the appearance and the taste, and, and they're going to reward somebody. But nobody's standing there thinking, I wonder what punishment I'll get. There's no punishment. There's just a loss of something, of the reward. And that's the judgment seat of Christ. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The, the issue of our sin has been dealt with. And so... Uh, our sins are, are gone. We read this morning in, in Hebrews chapter 10 or, or 9, there's no more conscience, consciousness of sin. He's, he's taken the sin issue away. And so 
you know, our sins are placed behind his back, as Zechariah tells us. He's put my sins behind his back. Micah tells us he's buried them uh, in the sea. Uh, Isaiah says he's blotted them out of his book. The psalmist says as far as the east is from the west. So our sins are, are gone. But we have responsibility in the Christian life. And one day we will stand uh, before him. So in, in Romans uh, chapter 14, it talks about the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, the judgment seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the, the assessment of what we've done. And you look at the context of those passages. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it's to do with our works. And what a lot of people don't realize in particular has to do with a local assembly. Paul is not talking about life in general, but he said, I came to Corinth and I laid a foundation. And other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. But let every man take heed how he builds upon it. And some build with wood, hay, and stubble, and others with gold, silver, and precious stone. And he said, a day's coming when it'll be tried as by fire. And what goes through the fire, of course, is enduring, will last. And so what we invest in the in the, the local church, what we invest in the lives of others is going to be evaluated uh, someday. And the Lord will assess that. It says of those who suffer loss, they'll be saved yet as by fire in heaven, but nothing to show for their life uh, for the Lord. And in Romans chapter 14, it's talking about how we view others uh, receiving the weaker brother, those that have scruples, those that have issues, uh, with certain things and how we interact and how we deal with with one another and in that context it says we're we're going to uh, appear before the Lord Jesus Christ and he's going to look at how we dealt with people our relationships how we reacted and responded that's going to be part of in second Corinthians chapter uh, 5 he talks about again our life whether it's been of worth of value or worthless before the Lord, a wasted life. And so our motives are going to be evaluated as well. And so the Lord is going to look at our lives. Now, when the judgment seat of Christ is described in those passages, uh, there's no uh, lawyer on our behalf. There's no defense. There's no appeal. Uh, We will know as we are known. uh, He, of course, knows all about us, and I think our lives will be like an open book before him. Uh, What is a mystery, of course, is that judgment seat of Christ is the first event, it seems, for the church in heaven. Following that comes the marriage of the Lamb, and I think the marriage supper takes place at the beginning of the millennial kingdom here on earth. But first event for us is the judgment seat of Christ. Now, there may be, who knows, a billion people in heaven So I don't know how in seven years that's going to happen, that all those things are going to take place. But somehow, that's what we're assured of, that the Lord's going to look at our life and it's going to be evaluated for him. And so it seems to be two extremes presented in Scripture. As we mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, saved yet is by fire. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 11 talks about an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom. Uh, and the Lord talked about the well done, thou good and faithful servant, the day of accounting, those that had used what God has given uh, for, uh, for his glory. And so it's so important when we think of the Christian life to recognize that 
There is a day of accountability coming. Our life counts not only for time, but for eternity. It would seem based on the parables the Lord gave that uh, what happens at the judgment seat of Christ is going to affect in some way our uh, responsibilities within the kingdom. Uh, There's a direct correlation. And perhaps another correlation is found in Revelation 19, verse 7, where the heavenly Jerusalem is seen, and it then describes that that city really as the bride of Christ, uh, dressed in linen, pure and clean, which is, it says, the righteousnesses of the saints. Or another translation says the righteous acts of the saints. So it seems, in a sense, what we are doing now is preparing us for that that day. And so there may be a sense of loss when we think of what our life could have been, the opportunities given and squandered, the assets given and squandered, the privileges given and squandered compared to what would be used uh, for the Lord. And so we don't know uh, what others do. Remember what the Lord said to Peter in John 21, when Peter said, well, what about that man? He said, well, what's that to you? Follow me. Keep your eyes on me. And so we won't be able to blame anybody else or point to anybody else that's between us and the Lord on that on that day. And so so important that we go on and, and finish uh, finish well. And that's what Paul presents to us here in verses six to verse eight, the, the thought of uh, finishing well. I don't know just in passing, I don't know if I mentioned Billy Graham, a book by Billy Graham, uh, Nearing Home. And uh, it it talks about, in old age, the fact that we can still be of value and still have a work and a ministry and an effect on on others. And so if you've never read uh, Nearing Home, uh, Billy gave out that first hymn, and the fourth verse talked about uh, youth departing and old age stealing on. I don't know if he's looking at us in the audience, or it just happened that that's... uh, He probably only looked at the first two verses, and then uh, the fourth verse seemed to fit. But... uh, uh, it's it's so important that we keep on keeping on and finishing well. And so here uh, Paul uh, uses this phrase in, in verse uh, 6, I'm being poured out as a drink offering, is what the New King James says, is a drink offering. And so he's, he's thinking of his time of his departure at hand. And you'll notice... In these, these verses, there really is uh, three tenses, three views in, 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 uh, in view, we might say. He's got the, the time of his departure uh, is the present time. Verse 7, he looks back over his life, the past. And then in verse 8, he looks to the future, the prospect, what lies uh, ahead. And so these three tenses are in view. But he thinks of himself as a drink offering. Now, that's a, sort of an interesting perspective. Uh, in the Old Testament, a drink offering was a voluntary uh, addition to a, a sacrifice. And so you didn't have to uh, offer a drink offering, but it was the idea that you know, here's my sacrifice, a meal offering or a, uh, a burnt offering, and I'm going to pour this cup of wine on top of it. Uh, and it was added devotion. It was uh, sort of an aspect of worship where you're going over and beyond. Uh, I'm not sure that I can remember ever uh, a passage that ascribes uh, 
a drink offering as a mandatory thing. It was a voluntary addition to. You added it on top of. And so that's how Paul sees himself. Remember, David uh, wanted that uh, water from the well at Bethlehem. And the men brought it and he said, well, I can't drink this. It's, it's the, life, the life of these men. And he poured it out on the ground. You'd say, well, what a waste. They, they you know, risked their lives to get that water. But he poured it out as before the Lord as an offering. Paul in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 17 says of himself, he says, uh, in this sense, he says, I'm that, that offering, I'm that drink offering, I'm what's just on top of your sacrifice and service. In other words, he's expressing there the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. So he's saying to them, what you're doing is, is of great value. Your, your service and sacrifice is important. I'm just that little extra poured out on, on top. And so that's how he sees himself here, is that, that drink offering, that which is given to the Lord voluntarily as an act of worship and devotion. But he says, the time of my departure is at hand. And that's a, a, a lovely phrase. When we think of, of death, of course, we think of the finality of death, humanly, humanly speaking. And there are tragedies, this little two-year-old boy that passed away we're, we're so thankful he's in the presence of the Lord. But there's the, the trauma, the tragedy, the, all that's associated, the sorrow uh, with, with death. But Scripture, the New Testament presents death in very uh, sort of mild or modified forms. It uh, often uses euphemisms for death, right? So where a word replaces what sounds like something harsh. And so those who fell asleep in Christ. Now, he's not talking about, you know, the morning meeting. He's obviously talking about, well, you're all awake, so obviously not. But uh, obviously talking about death, those who sleep in Christ. That's a, a wonderful sense of imagery. It's, it's not the harshness you've fallen asleep. It's a, it's a great blessing, isn't it, when you uh, fall asleep? But that's that's the idea of, of death for the, the Christian. It's not as as sort of harsh. Uh, so First uh, Thessalonians 4 talk about those who are asleep in Christ. And that's a wonderful uh, way to, to picture it. And, uh, Peter in 2 Peter uh, says, I'm ready to put off my tent. The idea of just collapsing the tent that's here and I've got something permanent up, up there. I'm just leaving what's temporary. Uh, there's a thought of a boat being uh, untied. It's moorings loosed and out to out to harbor, and we arrive, uh, we arrive in, in heaven. And so, it's a wonderful thought. There's an interesting expression again in First Corinthians chapter three, where Paul says, "All things are ours, whether life or death." Well, you see, that seems strange. I can understand. Uh, for a believer, yes, all things are ours because of what Christ has done, whether life or death. But death is merely the doorway, isn't it? It's just the entranceway into something far better. So Philippians 1, where Paul says, you know, I have a desire to be depart and be with Christ, which is far better, right? To be absent from the body and present uh, with the Lord, a wonderful, wonderful thing. And so death for the believer is not, is not quite the same as it would be for an unbeliever, of course. And so many have experienced that, where they've seen loved ones 
pass into the presence of the Lord with complete assurance and calmness and peace because they know where they're going. They're just falling asleep here and waking up uh, there. Uh, I think it was John Phillips, I heard him speak on this once, and he, he said, you know, it's like you, you put one foot down on Main Street here and the next foot is in Hallelujah Square up in heaven. You know, just from here to there, just gone like that. And so what a wonderful uh, prospect. And so Paul says, I'm ready to go. Now he's writing, of course, the year probably 65. He dies in the year 66, but the time of my departure is at hand. He's probably about 66 years old at the time, somewhere in his mid-60s. And so he's ready, ready to go. But when you think of what's beyond that door, uh, as the psalmist said in the, the 16th Psalm, he says, in your presence is fullness of joy, your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Why wouldn't we want to be there? Isaiah 33, 17, my eyes will see the king in his beauty. They'll behold the land as far off, or a land without, without measure. We saw in Revelation 22 this morning what Brad read to us of what it'll be. No temple there, the lamb, the light thereof, the lamb, all the glory of Emmanuel's land. And so why wouldn't we uh, want to be there? You know, Francis Havergale died rather young. She was 42 years old. And prior to that, she had been holidaying in, in Wales, and she was sick and at death's door. And she said this, thinking she was going to die at that time. She said, if I'm really going, it's too good to be true. But she recovered from there and lived another four or five years. But out of that experience, she wrote, like a river glorious is God's perfect peace. That was the background of it. She thought she was going, but she knew that perfect uh, perfect peace. And so what a prospect we have, the fact that we know where we're going and we know what, what lies uh, ahead. And so that's the, the past, or the present rather. He says, I'm ready to, ready to go. But then in verse 7, he gives us uh, three scenes here about the, the, the past. And so in the present, he's ready to go. In the past, he looks back at his, at his life. And there's three tenses here. I fought, I finished, I've kept. And all apparently are in a, what calls a, in the Greek, it's a, what's called a perfect tense, which means it's a completed act. It's, it's not ongoing, it's over. He's looking back and say, this is, there's a finality to this. This is a, a finished uh, work. And so he could say, I have fought the good fight. And so when you think of Paul in his life, there's not, a, it seems, an indication that he ever fought back for all that happened to him. Uh, he did appeal to his Roman citizenship uh, in Philippi. He appealed to Caesar, a right that he had when he was uh, imprisoned in Caesarea by the sea. But he never, no indication he ever physically fought for uh, deliverance, his rights, or whatever, in the sense of, of being physically involved. But he says, I fought the good fight. And so you think of what Paul had to face. It's, it's intriguing and interesting that even in the first century, it didn't take long for uh, opposition and false doctrine to, to come in. There were, shortly after you know, the start of the church, perhaps within the first 20 years, Gnosticism, uh, that's from the Greek word knowledge. It was people that thought 
you could rise to a higher level. And so often it was a mixture of perhaps some Far Eastern mysticism, some Judaism, and some Christianity. And the thought was, if you knew what we knew, you could you could come up to a higher uh, level. You're, you're at this level, but you could get up up here. So he had to fight against Gnosticism. Perhaps more often he fought against legalism, as he writes in the book of Galatians about people that wanted to go back under the law and put the Christians under that, that system. And he had to fight against uh, those those things. And so there was persecution, there was opposition, but he said, I fought the good fight. Well, there's a sense in which we have a fight, to, to a battle to fight to do as well. Again, it's not a physical battle, but uh, Jude tells us we are to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. When you think of uh, what... What Paul has said to Timothy, if you go back to chapter 3, verse 12, 2 Timothy three twelve. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving, be deceived, but you must continue. And so there's a battle uh, to be fought, and we see it in our day the attack on Scripture, the inerrancy, infallibility, attack on the deity of Christ, on the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ. There are things that we have to, to stand for if we've lost, lost everything. Well, it's, uh, over the last couple of years with the pandemic, many Christians have fought against things that aren't mentioned in Scripture. Well, there are lots of things that we have to take a stand for and fight uh, for. And so Paul could say as he looks back on his life, I have I have fought the good uh, fight. But then he says, I finished the race. And again, going back to Hebrews chapter 12, looking off unto Jesus, run with patience the race set before you. There is a sense in which your race may not be my race. Right? What the Lord calls you to do, what you face, what you go through, may be very different than the race that he's given me to run. But the, the thought is the same. If you're running a race, you're going to lay aside things that hinder the weight and the sin that hinders uh, you running. You don't run uh, a race in a snowsuit. Uh, you don't run with galoshes or, do you call them galoshes down here? Uh, boots on. Uh, we have a common heritage. All that separates us is a common language, of course. But uh, you don't run a race with those things. You don't run a race with a pack sack on your back. You Strip down as as much as you can to run a race, and so he says, "I've I've finished the race." He ran it uh, well, laying aside those those things. Uh, he said in Philippians chapter three verse ten, um, his his object was that I may know him. That was his his purpose uh, in in running uh, the race. And as we mentioned, there's lots who have not finished the race. Lots and lots have not finished. The race. It doesn't mean they weren't saved. Uh, you look at uh, Demas, who's mentioned in verse 9, where he says, or verse 10, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Troas. doesn't mean Demas was unsaved. So they gave up. He didn't want to live this life. He wanted to go sit in a pew somewhere and just, uh, just be occupied, not be concerned about these things. Why? Because he loved this present world, and so he didn't finish. Uh, he didn't finish the race uh, very, very well at all. 
Uh, some died young, but they finished their course. Uh, you think of Robert Murray McShane, uh, hero in Scotland. He was a pastor in Dundee in Scotland, uh, died at uh, 30 years old. But his life and legacy affected a, a whole generation. He's written a hymn that's in our black book, number 223, When This Passing World Is Done, When a Sunk Young Glaring Sun. But he left a tremendous legacy behind because of his ministry, his life, that at that young of age, uh, he affected so much of, of the nation of Scotland. There's a man who went as an Anglican missionary to, to India by the name of Henry Martin. Anybody ever heard of Henry Martin? One or two? Henry Martin died at 31 years old. Uh, in his time in India, he translated the New Testament in three different languages. But he had a nickname called Saintly Henry Martin. You can imagine somebody in their 20s called Saintly. Uh, perhaps in my 20s, I might have been called something, but I don't think it, was, it, was, <laughs> it wasn't Saintly necessary. Uh, slow, now I'm just called old. But, um, uh, you know, short life, but a tremendous impact. Uh, a life that uh, really had an impact was, I just wrote down some things about, uh, how many know who William Borden was? You heard of William Whiting Borden? Charles and Norma, huh? Uh, William Borden uh, was born into a, a wealthy family in Chicago, very, very wealthy. He would have been heir to millions of dollars. This was back, uh, in, he was born in 1887, so way back. He was, he was born into extreme wealth. When he was 16 years old and had graduated from high school, his parents gave him a cruise around the world, a trip around the world, of course, by ship at that time. But in going around the world, he saw the, the need for people to have Christ. That's what impressed him, not the, the views of, of what he saw, but the need that he saw. And so uh, he, he attended Moody Church in, in Chicago, but he went to Yale uh, University to get a degree. And in his first year at Yale, he started a prayer meeting. Him and one other fellow uh, joined together for prayer. His last year, there were 1,300 students at Yale. 1,000 of them gathered for prayer. He started two risk rescue missions. He's just a young man, of course. He then went to Princeton, and then he, he wanted to reach Muslims in China was his goal. So he went to Egypt, to Cairo, to learn Arabic. And there he contracted cerebral meningitis, and he died. 25 years old, he died. And you'd wonder and think, well, why did the Lord allow that? But out of his death, thousands went out as missionaries. It affected the whole world in that, that sense. But you can Google his gravestone, uh, his gravesite. It's on, on Google. And it's in, in Cairo. He's buried. And this is what it says on his, on his uh, tombstone. It's not a stone upright. It's a flat uh, tombstone. But it says this, William Borden, a man in Christ, he arose and forsook all and followed him. Kindly affectionate with brotherly love, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, instant in prayer, communicating to the necessity the necessities of others, in honor preferring others. And then at the bottom it says, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Imagine, 25 years old. And so the race didn't last long, but he certainly finished well. Now there's a, three sayings associated with him. 
whether these are true or not. Everything you read has these, but then some say there's no proof of them. But it's said that when he got saved, he wrote in his Bible, uh, no, uh, no retreat. And then when he went to, uh, to Cairo, he, he wrote, no reserves. And then when his mother got the Bible back, it said, no regrets. Uh, so those phrases, if you Google, they're associated with them, but there are other sites that say there's no proof that those things ever took place. But they do really captivate what his life was, was all about. Uh, no, no retreat, no reserves, no regrets. So that's what Paul could say here. He says, I've, I've finished the race. I've, I've run it well, as opposed to somebody like Demas who, 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 gave, who gave up. And then he says, I've kept the faith. And so again, in light of what we said, he, he was faithful to the end. Demas gave up. Others, he mentions in First and Second Timothy, those who have turned aside, those who have wandered astray. But Paul can say, no, I've kept the faith. And so as he looked back on life, he could say, these things have been true of me. Remember what Caleb said in the Old Testament, the book of Judges. He said, I've wholly followed the Lord. Now, if it was only Caleb that said that, you know, you'd wonder. But Moses said that of Caleb. He said, Caleb's holy follow the Lord. Now, if it was only Caleb and Moses, you might wonder. But God said it too. God said of Caleb, he's holy followed the Lord. What a, an accolade. What a, what a great response that he wholly followed the Lord. And so he looks to the past and he says, here's, here's my life. Here's what I've done. These three tenses, completed, finished, uh, over, and done. But then he looks ahead in verse, in verse 9, or verse 8 rather. There's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but all who have loved his appearing or longed for. The NIV says longed for his appearing. And so he says, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus, right? Earth trials will pass away when we see him. One glimpse of his blessed face, all sorrows will erase. It will be worth it all. And so that's what Paul says. He looks ahead and he talks about this crown of righteousness. Now there's five crowns, of course, mentioned uh, in the New Testament. But the crowns here, they're a different word, a Greek word than the crown the Lord Jesus Christ wears, Stephanus. A crown, a wreath uh, is given to believers. He wears what is referred to as a diadem. His crown is something different. He's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And so he has that crown that depicts what he is. But we get these, these crowns uh, in response. Uh, here it's for those who love or long for his appearance. And we don't know all the criteria. First uh, Peter chapter 5 talks about elders who have ruled well receiving a crown and these other crowns in Scripture. But whatever and however it's assessed, there is, there is this reward to, to be won. Ultimately, these crowns are then cast at his feet as an act of, of worship. It would be wonderful to have something from our life to hand back to him, cast at his feet in response and recognition for what he's done uh, for us. Now, the interesting thing in life, of course, John fifteen four says, without me, you can do nothing. Anything we ever do, it's through him by his spirit. And yet he will reward us as if we've done it. 
He gives us the spirit of uh, power, of love, of a sound mind. He gives us the gift. He gives us the opportunity, the leading, the direction. Uh, works through us, but then at the end of the day, he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. It's as if we'd done something. But it's only through union with him, only through his life flowing through us. But ultimately, he'll look at our life and say, this was what was done for me. And that assessment will take place. And so we need to keep a, an eye on the goal, what lies ahead, and the fact that there is that upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. And one day we will stand there and those crowns will be uh, given out. And so trust the Lord just encourage us with that. Keep on keeping on. Run well the race that's set before us. Like I said, everybody has a different race to run, but we all are responsible for what the Lord has given us. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the life of Paul, an example, and that he could look back uh, to the the battles he fought, the race that he ran, and, and the faith that he, he kept. And then he could look ahead to what was coming. And Father, we thank you for that. And in light of the life he uh, could live, he could say he was ready to depart. The time of his departure was at hand. He was ready to go. And Father, we pray that these things would be true in our lives, that we'd live in such a way that we look back without regret, and we look ahead with rejoicing, the thought of the appearing of the Lord Jesus. May we be among those who love his appearing, are longing uh, for his appearing, eagerly looking for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So bless your people, encourage us from your word, for we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.